The Lord loves to hear the praises of His people. You can imagine one day when we stand in heaven and all of the multitudes surround the throne and we will cry out with the angels, Holy, Holy, Holy. I'll invite you this evening to consider God's holiness with me from the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah's prophecy, we'll be considering chapter 6 this evening under the heading of Confessing God's Holiness, and then we'll turn together in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 47. But first, Confessing God's Holiness from Isaiah chapter 6. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak tree, whose stump remains when it is felled. And the holy seed is its stump. Here ends the reading of God's Word. This evening, would you turn with me in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 46, which can be found on page 254 of your forms and prayers this evening. Lord's Day 47. Lord's Day 47. Question 122 asks, what, is the, what does the first petition mean to which we respond? Hallowed be your name means... Help us to truly know You, to honor, glorify, and praise You for all Your works and for all that shines forth from them. Your almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and truth. And it means, 
Help us to direct all our living, what we think, say, and do, so that Your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Blessed congregation, one of the most central themes of the Bible is that God is holy. It is so central. It is said of God, holy is His name. Name in the Bible so often refers to the person. So when the psalmist cries out, holy is your name, what the psalmist is really saying is, holy are you, O Lord. And so we pray in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. His name is holy because He is holy. And yet, in the world that we live, we see that His name is not treated as holy. By my estimation, the majority of the time God's name is used, it's mostly a curse word. Am I right on that? Or simply something we say to bluster our argument, we say, I swear to God! The fish was this big. When we look around, we see that this name is not given much reverence. It's not given much honor. It's not given much awe. But what Jesus says in His Sermon on the Mount is that our respect for God is vividly seen in how we treat His name. And so our catechism comes to what is rightly considered the first petition. You see that in question 122. What does the first petition mean? And boys and girls, petition means request. And what our catechism is doing is subtly correcting an error that we so often fall into. See, in the Lord's Prayer, it begins, if you flip back to Lord's Day 46, with an address. Our Father who art in heaven. That is the one we address our prayers to. But the first request, the first petition is, hallowed be thy name. Do you think of that as a petition? Do you think of that as a request? See, I think most people assume it is an ascription. It is a description describing God. But that's not what Jesus says. It is a petition. It is a prayer that we would regard God as holy. That His holiness would fill our thoughts and our minds. That His holiness would fill our worship so that He would always be honored and praised no matter where we are or where we go. You know, no one knew this better than the prophet Isaiah in his report of his own call to the ministry, in every fiber of his being, he knew that God was holy. And what we see is it's very sense-oriented. Isaiah describes first what he sees. Then he describes what he feels. And then he describes what he hears. And in all of it, God is holy, holy, holy. So I want to show you this evening first 
what Isaiah sees is God's holiness. You know, there may not be a passage in the Bible which reveals the holiness of God in such a vivid way than the vision of Isaiah chapter 6. This is a retelling of Isaiah's dramatic call to the ministry where the prophet is shown the holiness of God. Now, Isaiah gives us an important context to this vision in verse 1 where he tells us that it was in the year that the king Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was a king of the northern nation of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 15 or excuse me, 52 years after he was installed as king at the ripe age of 16 years old. He was a remarkable man to have a reign that long. But what is most remarkable about Uzziah, and which is always the most remarkable thing about any king, is it says in 2 Chronicles, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. See, we don't understand this. Having a new president every four to eight years. But could you imagine having a king, having a president who loves God, who pursues righteousness for 52 years? There are people who were born and lived and died and King Uzziah was the only king they ever had. And God blessed Uzziah. And He blessed Judah under Uzziah. We are told in the Chronicles that he was victorious in battle. King Uzziah built up the city of Jerusalem. He dug cisterns in the desert and expanded the nation's agriculture so that there was an abundance of food and abundance of money. He restored Israel's military might to a height not seen since the Davidic kingship. And even though his life ended on a sad note, the note of sin, we read in 2 Chronicles 26. He goes into the temple and he seeks to offer his own incense, which was the job of the priest. And when the priest rebuked him, he rebuked them. And remember, God put leprosy on his forehead. So he had to live apart from God's people and the temple. But even though his life ended in sin, for the majority of his career, he was a great king. He was a beloved king. But the context of Isaiah's vision is that the king is dead. Now lest the significance of this is lost on us, we need to remember that in the death of a king in the ancient world was often the marker of upsetting the social order of the day. Brothers began to fight brothers. Who will ascend to the throne? Uncles and queens and aunts vying for power. When a king died, it was the most uncertain time in a nation. The people are asking, who will be the next king? Will this next king lead us in righteousness? Will the next king be a good king as King Uzziah was? And will he do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? And so Isaiah, in verse 1, goes to the temple. Commentators think he goes there to try to find some comfort in the uncertainty of this national 
crisis. But as he goes into the temple, he does not see the courts or the altar or the Holy of Holies. He goes into the temple and he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now something you need to know is that every time the Bible shows God sitting on His throne, it is a sign that He is still the majestic King of the universe. It is a sign that He is still the majestic King of the whole universe. This is why Isaiah makes a minor nuance you may not have noticed. He says, look at verse 1, I saw the Lord, but he doesn't capitalize all those letters, does he? L-O-R-D. Like he does later in the chapter where it says, I saw the Lord in verse 5. When you see, boys and girls, when you see L-O-R-D all capitalized, this is referring to God's covenant name, Yahweh. But that's not the term Isaiah uses here. He uses just the L capitalized which is His name for sovereignty. His name for kingship. It is His title. This is very significant. Because even though Isaiah was living in a time of national crisis, even though there was great uncertainty in the land, who would be king? The sovereign was still on the throne. He saw God. And what Isaiah is communicating, or what Isaiah communicates to us, is what he sees. And everything he sees about God is holy. Catechism class, do you remember what holiness means? You should, because we talked about it this morning. It means to be set apart. And this isn't just some ordinary holiness like that room your my parents had when I was a kid the kids weren't allowed to go in there because it was set apart for guests and visiting no this is what I want to suggest to you an extraordinary holiness above him stood the seraphim Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. And with two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. Why is God's holiness extraordinary? Because what you need to remember about angels, the seraphim, is that they were pure beings. They had not sinned. One preacher put it like this, these angels would have been so pure, so holy in and of themselves, so glorious, that if one stood in our midst, we would have a hard time not worshiping it. And yet, a multitude of pure, perfect, beautiful beings cry out, holy, holy, holy. Because He's so much farther above them. They use two wings to cover their eyes. Because even though they might be pure, they are nothing compared to the pureness of God. They can't gaze directly on His face. 
With two of their wings, they cover their feet. Now this is kind of interesting. Why would an angel who flies cover their feet? R.C. Sproul notes that in the presence of God, one thing we often see is people have to remove their shoes, their sandals. They're standing on holy ground. And Sproul notes that this is actually a sign that we are human. We are creatures. Because our feet are what connect us to the ground. He says our feet are what link us to the earth. Even though these angels are not human, they are covering their feet. In their covering of their feet, they are acknowledging that they are still mere creatures. Compared to the Almighty, it's as if they're saying, I am nothing. And you are everything. The crux of Isaiah's vision is what they cry out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You know, one thing I studied this week was what kind of singing was this? I guess I was always under the impression that they likely chanted this together. But notice what the text says. It says they called out to another. That it's as if one angel cried out, holy, 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 and the other angel responded, no, he's even more holy than that. He's holy, holy, holy. And then a third, and then a fourth, and then a thousandth to the ten thousandth. They kept crying out, holy, 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 till the whole earth was full. And only a handful of times is something in the Bible ever repeated to the third degree. This is a Hebraism when they wanted to emphasize something instead of putting an exclamation point behind it or underlining it, they would just repeat it three times. Jesus say, often said, truly, truly. Only a few times is something mentioned three times in the whole Bible. And only once is an attribute, attribute of God mentioned three times. Never in the Bible do you read, God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or wrath, wrath, wrath. Justice, justice, justice. But He is holy, holy, holy. This is how extraordinarily holy God is. Even the angels cannot bear that sight. And this means that holiness is not just a purity. Remember, those seraphs were pure. The holiness of God communicates. He is so apart, so unique, so unapproachable, so incomprehensible, so unimaginable. It is beyond even the greatest thing you could ever think of. He is not just holy. Nor is He merely holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Set apart to the greatest degree. Think about how comforting this would have been for the prophet Isaiah in a time of political uncertainty. The Puritans, I can't remember exactly which one for the life of me, talked about what they, this one Puritan talked about, the seatedness of God. 
that even with all of our concerns in this world and all of the crises that we deal with in our lives, God is still seated on the throne. Is God pacing back and forth in heaven? Oh, I really hope those Judeans make the right decision with their king. Oh, I really hope they get the right thing down and they figure it out and they follow me. No, God is seated on His throne. When you are stressed out, He is still seated. When we are worried, He is still seated. When the president you don't like gets elected, God still sits on the throne. And so in the holiness of God, when we confess His holiness, look at what our catechism says. We must acknowledge His almighty power. Nothing escapes His control. Nothing is beyond His sovereignty. And even when everything else seems to go to pot, He is still sovereign. He governs all things in wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and truth. And beloved, if we really believe this, if this is what we confess about God, can we not leave all of our concerns with Him? There is a peace. There is a confidence in prayer when we can confess our God reigns. So what Isaiah sees is that God is so set apart. He doesn't need to worry. He doesn't need to fear. He doesn't need to fret. He is seated on the throne. That's the first thing we see about Isaiah. What he sees I want to draw your attention now to what he feels. Isaiah feels God's holiness. You know, it has been said that the goal of the Christian life is to see God's face. The goal of the Christian life is to see God's face. Remember, it was Moses who prayed in Exodus 33, Show me thy glory. What are Aaron's words in the benediction we'll hear in just a few moments? May God bless and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. We want to see God's face. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Well, Isaiah sees God. Thank God he saw Him. Notice, Isaiah begins to be feel the shaking of the temple in verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And as he sees the Lord, look what he cries out. Woe is me! For I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, if there is an extraordinary holiness in God, there is an extraordinary abasement in Isaiah. Boys and girls, woe is an old word, old word, but it's a very important Bible word. And when someone in the Bible says woe, they're pronouncing the judgment of God on 
your head. A clear example of this is Jesus in Matthew 23 when he says, woe to the scribes and woe to the Pharisees. He's pronouncing a curse upon them. And much of a prophet's job in the Old Testament was proclaiming woe. Isaiah actually had already been doing that. If you have your Bibles open, turn to Isaiah chapter 5, where we see he has been pronouncing woes. Look at this, Isaiah 5 verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house and field to field until there is no more room that's buying up of the promised land. Look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. Speaking of drunkenness, verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those mighty at drinking wine and woe to those valiant men valiant for mixing intoxicating drinks. In the Bible, whole nations are judged. Whole cities and individuals are judged when a prophet pronounces woe. And the prophets often pronounced woes in sevens. They would pronounce seven different woes in order to show that judgment was complete. But here's the thing. If you count those up, how many are there? There's only six. Do you see who receives the seventh woe? The seventh woe, chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me. In light of God's holiness, He pronounces judgment upon Himself. Sproul notes again in Isaiah's cry, he calls down the curse of God, the utter anathema of judgment, and doom upon his own head. Close quote. Woe is me, for I am lost. The old King James Version says, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm falling apart. I'm unraveling in God's holiness. And you know what's really incredible about this story? Isaiah was a good guy. He was considered one of the most righteous men of Israel. Isaiah was a man of virtue. But with one glimpse at holy God, he is reduced to a puddle on the floor. You see, it's in light of who God is that we see ourselves for who we really are. It's like John Calvin says, true wisdom consists in this, a right knowledge of who God is and a right knowledge of who we are. See, this is the first thing I think Isaiah feels. Even though he describes the temple first, the first thing he feels is his own sinfulness. Woe is me. But praise God, as our catechism says, that the God who shows you your filthiness is also the God of mercy. As Isaiah is groveling on the floor, wishing he had a place to hide, searching, Lord, let me go. 
God in His mercy takes a step to cleanse the man. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way, the God who shows you your filthiness is also the God who provides for your cleansing. God commands a seraph to go to the altar, to take a white hot coal, too hot for even an angel to touch, it says. The angel has to use tongs. And he takes the coal to Isaiah and presses it upon his lips. One thing I learned this week is that, did you know the lips are one of the most sensitive parts of the human body? Imagine the pain of a searing coal upon your lips. The smell of burning flesh and the whiskers burning off of his beard. What a horrible punishment it would have been if the coal was not taken from the altar of God. The altar in the Old Testament was the place where the burnt offerings were given on the Day of Atonement. See Leviticus 16, verse 12. It is not insignificant that the coal comes from the place of sacrifice where people's sins would be forgiven. Where they would be restored to fellowship with God. Where it was promised that they were made pure again. This coal from the altar is nothing but the type of the Lord Jesus Christ. A shadow of His atoning work. And how He would go to the cross and the white hot wrath of God that would burn our flesh and singe our bodies was poured out upon Him. Does it not say on the cross that it was darkened for three days because God brought hell up to His own beloved Son? How He cried out, God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? This answers the question, He was forsaken for Isaiah. He was forsaken that His sins would be atoned for. He was forsaken that He would be made pure. Beloved, this is not a punishment. This is the greatest blessing Isaiah has ever received. For look at the angel's declaration. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. Isaiah, in the presence of God, is cleansed throughout. Top to bottom. Forgiven to the core with the coal of atonement. God's wrath poured out. One thing that needs to be said here, brothers and sisters, forgiveness does not come without the pain of repentance. See, in light of God's holiness, in prayer, we too must cry out, woe is me. And in light of God's holiness, Isaiah doesn't blame shift, does he? Lord, it's the culture that made me sin. It's my wife. No, he says, Woe is me. He takes the burden upon Himself. We too must say, there are sinners. And I am one of them. One thing I'd like to add to our catechism lesson here is that we will never be able to know God, never be able to honor and glorify and praise Him if we don't start with, woe is me. 
It is after he is cleansed, after he is made pure and clean, the prophet is able to stand in the presence of God and worship him. Are you coming to God, holy God, in the blood of Christ? It's the most important thing. So finally, Isaiah hears God's holiness. As we're considering the holiness of God, it's a very fearful thing. But do you notice where this comes and what section of our catechism this is in? It's in the section of gratitude. Hallowing God's name is through and through by gratitude. We must not just recognize that He is holy, but as J.I. Packer says, hallowing His name requires praise. Praising God for His goodness and His greatness of His redemptive work and the dazzling blend of wisdom, love, justice, power, and faithfulness. Close quote. Consider Isaiah. Holy God in His wisdom has just justified the unjust. In love He provides a cleansing. By power He renews His heart. And His first response is gratitude. We see this all throughout the Bible. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, but to Your name be glory. Psalm 138. You have exalted Your name in Your Word. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. Great are the works of the Lord. Full of splendor and majesty. Faithful and just are all His precepts. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. We worship the Lord for His holiness. We don't cower in fear because we come clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so too, the catechism says, we are called to honor His name. Help us to direct all our living, what we think, say, and do so that Your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. See, returning to Isaiah's vision, It takes on a new dimension. He has seen the Lord. He has felt the hot coal on His lips. He has heard the seraphim's cry, but now for the first time He hears the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Here's another wonderful application. God's holiness may break you. You may be so ashamed of your sin like Isaiah that nobody in this world could put you back together again. But God can. God takes sinful Isaiah, puts him together in Christ, and then commissions him to be his emissary. If God can take a shattered man and make of him the greatest Old Testament prophet, surely holy God can restore you as well. He can take a sinful man and make him pure. He can take a dirty mouth and fill it with his message. What we'll see, though, is that Isaiah's ministry is not all sunshine and roses. No, God tells him, if you look at the rest of the chapter, he will preach to people, but they won't listen. They will see him, but they will not perceive. But this is our experience as well. Jesus told us many are called, but few are chosen. The way to heaven is narrow, 
But we, like Isaiah, are called to respond to God's holiness despite the minimal promise of success and say, here am I. Father, send me. In Christ's name, I will go. Are you willing to go where Christ sends you? Here too is the call and commission for you to go into all the world and to make disciples. If you have seen God's holiness and experienced the atonement, you too are called. Well, finally, Isaiah cries out, How long? Not how long do I have to preach, but how long, O Lord, will your people reject you? Notice Yahweh's response. It's quite curious. He says, until, through the, until and through the time when the land is ruined and the people are taken captive, and then what's, taken, what's left after the captivity is wiped out again. Verses 11 and 12. And I can tell you, if that was on my call letter to Trinity URC, I would have been hesitant. But Isaiah is comforted. Verse 13 that there will be a holy seed. A remnant. His people. That the same coal that atoned for Isaiah's sin will save many others. That he will not be alone. That there will be a church, a multitude of people, saved by holy God. This is a messianic promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, God, that holy God will send His Savior in grace. So this Advent season, could we not say the answer to how long, O Lord, is that one day in Nazareth, a baby would be born, and His name would be Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And He would go to the cross so that holy God and sinful man might dwell together again. How long, O Lord, gather your people through your prophet and through your people here in Caledonia, we pray. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are holy, holy, holy. And we desire to see your face. What a comfort it is to know that one day we will see God, but we will not need to cower in fear like the prophet did. Because, Father, we will have been cleansed, have been purified in the blood of Emmanuel's Lamb. And we pray that, Lord, we would go like the prophet Isaiah under the ends of the earth, that we would share Your Gospel abroad until Your church is made full and Your people are brought in. For that is the hope of this church. It's the hope of all the world that you have determined to save lost sinners. May you always be hallowed, made holy by your people here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's respond to God's Word by standing to sing in response from the Trinity Psalter Hymnal number 29b. 29b, Now unto Jehovah ye sons of the mighty. Number 29b.
Our doxology will be number 160, stanzas 1 and 2 of number 160. Savior, again, to thy dear name we raise. Receive God's parting word of peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.